Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of the African Tech Roundup. Thanks for joining us. Now, as many of you now know, every Monday we round up the week's most important technology, digital, and innovation news from across Africa. My name is Andy Lemasugo. I'm a broadcaster and entrepreneur, and with me is the homie, Defo Mohapi. What it do, man? What's up? Hey, I'm chilling, man. Defo is not only my co-host on the African Tech Roundup, but also an extremely busy tech entrepreneur and the executive editor of iAfrican.com. A special welcome to you if you're joining us for the first time. Do feel free to catch up on everything you've missed over the last month or so at africantechroundup.com or subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, just search for African Tech Roundup and you'll find us right quick. So what's coming up after the news in this week's discussion, Devo? Interesting debate on uh, open source software versus uh, proprietary software. And yeah, I differ with you, but let's let's get to the news. <laughs> Battle stations, everybody. But before we get to all that, this week the African Tech Roundup is supported by a rather special event. It's a talk and fireside chat that's been dubbed Skills Crowdsourcing with Trevor Wolf. Now, Trevor's the managing director of the acclaimed startup Spring Leap, and he'll be sharing his personal experiences as managing director and head of commercialization at Spring Leap and speaking on lessons he's learned from pivoting and running their business. It's all happening on Thursday, the 28th of May, between 6.30 and 9 p.m. at the Witz Digital Innovation Zone in Brompton, Johannesburg, South Africa. So whether you're a student, a freelancer, running projects in a company, or even in the process of founding a startup of your own, come and learn how crowdsourcing can help you make a success of your venture. For more details and to book your seat... Head to bit.ly forward slash startup Josie. Following on uh, last week's debate, which generated quite a lot of talk on social media and on SoundCloud as well, one of our regular listeners who hails from San Francisco, Brand Doherty, had something to say. And this is what he wanted to say about co-working spaces and what he's observed in Johannesburg. Just remember he hasn't been here long, but clearly long enough for him to get a feel for what's going down here in Johannesburg and sort of give us a take on the differences. Here we go. Yeah, so I started looking at co-working spaces here uh, when I moved um, to have a place, you know, to work with other people instead of working from home all the time where it's it can be kind of hard to focus when you're in that environment. I imagine other people have that experience too when they go to the coffee shops. Um, I see that here. It's really popular in San Francisco. But the coffee shops, the internet is unreliable. Um, so um, you go in, you know, you buy something and then expect to use the Wi-Fi and it's virtually unusable, so you just wasted your time. So it seems like co-working spaces are kind of a necessity um, for people like me. So yeah, I started exploring the different ones, and I was surprised that they're all, you know, at least 2,000. Impact Hub goes up to over 3,000. So I mean, you you must be making you know good money here in South Africa to be able to afford them. Kind of surprised. I mean, these are like American prices for co-working spaces. And they don't really offer anything that I can tell. Um, it's basically just a desk and Wi-Fi and other people working around you to kind of interact with. And I was hoping, you know, Josie Hub or Impact Hub would kind of have 
advantages, maybe make it worth the money. But it seems like, I mean, besides having a few events, which you can attend, really, even if you don't pay for their membership. Yeah, I mean, you don't even need to pay for the membership to get to attend the events at the hubs, which seems like the only advantage for them. Then we got a comment from someone in Uganda who appreciates the work Hive Colab is doing in his country. Listen to this. My name is David Okui, uh, editor-in-chief of uh, Dignited, a Ugandan-based tech blog. So I want to comment about the impact of tech hubs in Africa. And basically I would say that, um, yes, they have done a pretty good job to provide basic infrastructure for serious entrepreneurs. So basically with space and internet, that is good enough to get any serious entrepreneur out there on the ground. And that is something that the tech hubs in Africa have done. Uh, for us here at Dignited, uh, we basically incubate a type collab and the hub has done a pretty good job of giving us a space where we can meet and discuss and exchange ideas, something that we couldn't have if Hive didn't provide us that platform. Celestine Ezeokoye is a self-confessed geek and tech entrepreneur from Nigeria. And he has some ideas about what incubators need to do in order to contribute to the success of startups. Here's what he had to say. My thoughts on tech hubs is that... Just like every other business, technology hubs in Africa are still trying to find their footing. They are still trying to put themselves in the best position. I think um, they are going to figure out the best way to make this happen. I think if you go by the records of um, tech hubs, they have a few wins which they can actually build on and grow. Is it as effective as it should be? Maybe right now, maybe not, but that's the way every startup is. In the beginning, it's not, uh, or every industry is in the beginning. It doesn't go as it should be until people work out the nuances of it. But could it work out for Africa? I think in the long run it would. If you look at what has come out of tech hubs, you would say things like um, GameSoul, for instance, was funded by 88 miles per hour and budget and a few others. So I really think that if they can actually review their model from time to time, they would work out so that they don't get obsolete. The problem lies when tech hubs don't involve themselves in the businesses that they are trying to support and just feel just like let the business just run and they don't get involvement. I think when they get involved, like put in your money, put in your effort, don't just be up there and let the business run. Be in it, own equity, grow it, feel the pinch. Then, of course, they'll evolve unless it's just a co-working space then that's a different case entirely that also has its own place and finally we got a fairly successful south african tech entrepreneur to share some helpful insight on south africa's incubator accelerator and innovation hubs craig mcleod ceo of bold www.getbuildtoday okay so let's talk about incubators hubs and accelerators We'll start right at the bottom of the value chain. In South Africa, incubators tend to be niche landlords. They will either take a fairly large chunk of equity or provide a small amount of capital and then place you into a rather expensive space where you're renting your, your desk for anywhere between one to 4,000 rand a square meter. 
as compared to, for example, going and renting a simple office at 160 rand a square meter. Typically, incubators sell you on the fact that you're going to be along with, uh, sitting with a whole bunch of other tech companies, and unfortunately, those really don't help you. Being uh, one of many struggling startups doesn't really give you any advantage. So typically, you want to avoid an incubator. Many great companies, uh, one I used to work for was a gentleman called Mark Shuttleworth, and we sold that for $580 million. The key thing we didn't do there was go into an expensive space. We uh, simply worked out of a flat. So try to avoid incubators. They tend to be nothing more than a very, very expensive niche landlord. Accelerators tend to do exactly as their name suggests. They either accelerate you into your success or into a brick wall and force you to pivot. The good thing about that is they help you get your business ready. The other good thing about accelerators, they almost never take any equity, and if they do, it's usually in single digits. And for this, they'll also provide you introductions to both deal flow and to venture capital. Now, there's a very simple trinity that you need if you're a startup. The first thing is access to market, deal flow, access to money, venture capital, or access to the press. With any one of those three, you can usually get the other two. And this is where accelerators are really, really good and add the most value in the current chain, at least from a South African point of view. Finally, we have hubs. So there are a lot of great hubs at the moment. Uh, a great example is the Innovation Hub. And what they do is they offer a combination of funding, mentorship, management, and a space to work from. So these kind of, you start to get to the, the, the best of both worlds. You get kind of half an incubator mixed with half an accelerator. So it really becomes down to what you feel is gonna work best for your business. You know, you could uh, bootstrap from home, you could go into an accelerator, or you could do the whole hog. You could do an accelerator and an incubator. Typically though, in the South African front, what you really wanna be doing is bootstrapping as far as you can, get into a good accelerator, and then get access to financing. Of course, on the South African front, we don't have a lot of good finance in terms of VC amounts or good angel investors. So what you'll tend to find is a lot of people are going to offer you a few hundred thousand rand and try and take a large chunk of your company. The problem with that is a few hundred thousand rand will only buy you a few months running time at best in terms of your runway. So what you usually want to do is get into an accelerator, get your business focused so you can make some money and you can bootstrap your way to success. Most of the big successes in South Africa have come from companies who bootstrapped it until they made it. So my general advice, find a great accelerator. The top of my list would be SW7 and bootstrap your way until you've got some good revenue. Try to avoid incubators. They are just niche landlords. And if you want an even mix, head down and speak to the guys at the Innovation Hub. They're probably your best bet for the best of all worlds. Many, many thanks to Brent, David, Celestine, and Craig for their comments this week. And now with that out of the way, let's get into this week's news. Now, Defo, please tell me what Nokia has that people could actually want. <laughs> well, there's something interesting. Uber is interested in something they have. Ah, shame. I'm, I'm being you know, rather cheeky because I'm an Android fan. But seriously, uh, leading automakers like Audi and Mercedes-Benz and tech firms like Uber, like you say, and Facebook, all in a bidding war for something that Nokia has. What the heck is it? Well, uh, it looks like Uber, everybody's favorite driver and not so favorite cab company, if you ask the other cab drivers, is leading the bid to acquire Nokia's HIA division, which is the Nokia's uh, mapping technology division. 
What here is is very similar to any other mapping technology like Google Maps. And what makes this story very topical for us is that currently Uber is using Google Maps to when you open your app and you look for a cab, the map that you see is being supplied by Google. So in this case, what seems to be happening and why Uber is bidding for Nokia Here Maps is for them to take total control of their whole supply chain, so to say. They already have data on your spending. They already have your credit card details. They already have all that intelligence data. They still have your mapping data, even though it's sitting on Google. But in this case, they will own the technology. Oh, yeah. And doesn't Google have someone sitting on Uber's board and that kind of thing? Yeah, they're an investor in Uber and they also have someone sitting on, on the board. So, But with this, it won't affect uh, the, the seat on the board. All this will do is that it will give Uber total control over their mapping technology. Now, easily one of the year's biggest deal in tech so far uh, is Telcom's acquisition of Business Connection for a whopping 2.67 billion rand or nearly an estimated 226 million US dollars to enable the company to grow into the rest of Africa. Now, uh, therefore, why is this such an important acquisition for Telcom? And more importantly, why was the Competition Commission watching this deal so closely? Well, for starters, for Telcom, this is very important because it gives them visibility to a certain customer set that they've never had. Also offering that customer set, which is uh, your enterprise customers, different uh, services. So they all of a sudden offer end-to-end services from telecoms right up to systems integration, software development, and all that. So this puts them up there with the likes of uh, Dimension Data, which owns an ISP called Internet Solutions. But Telcom, remember, also owns a lot of telecom, telco infrastructure infrastructure so it, it gives them quite a bit of dominance in this market the competition commission is looking very closely as you asked to at this deal because as we just mentioned they own a lot of telco infrastructure and they sell this to other system integrators who compete with uh, business connection now with them owning business connection and with that comes business connections clients they wanted to make sure that in the process of telecom becoming also a systems integrator ict systems integrator they're not going to discount their landline business, their ADSL business, etc., etc., to disadvantage those other players in the market. Makes total sense. Uh, I mean, there are quite a few conditions that the Competition Commission has put in place. We're not going to go into those right now. But my thing about those kind of restrictions, while understandable, don't they sort of hamper this level of innovation a tech firm needs to have? I guess there's different sides to it, and the other side is to avoid monopoly businesses. But if you look around, any good business is a monopoly business. <laughs> well, to Ghana now. While the rest of the continent continues to wear the fact that we lead the world in terms of mobile penetration, uh, you know, as a badge of honor. And I don't know why we do that, because, I mean, the networks make all the money. But anyway, look, while there are amazing mobile-driven internet penetration numbers coming out of countries like Morocco, Nigeria, Botswana, even Lesotho, Ghana is seeing a drop in mobile data. Yeah, latest report says that Ghana mobile data usage has dropped, which is very interesting and I'm keeping a very close eye on it. Do people know why? At the moment, I don't think there's a clear indication. User subscriptions have gone up, but mobile data usage has gone down. And this is very concerning considering that uh, with the influx of Android smart, cheap Android smartphones, we're hoping that people adopt using mobile data so that we can build more apps on top of that and more services on top of that. But with a drop of uh, mobile data usage, it's quite a concern watching it closely. How's this for a random story? An anonymous group of hackers has violated the copyright of a South African company called Segunjalo Investment Holdings. Now, they've done this by publishing a searchable stash 
of most of the archive of the now-defunct Newswire service, South African Press Association, uh, SAPA, uh, with the content dating as far as 1998. And this is after that archive was acquired in March this year, uh, and uh, and after Segunjalo replaced SAPA with the African News Agency in the same month. Now, what the heck is going on here? Is Julian Assange running a global hacktivism boot camp out of the jungles of Ecuador? What the what on earth is going on? Well, this hacker group, as they as they reported to be, say they believe in free press one, and also that data must be free and must be made available to everyone for free. I'm with them, eh? The thing is, uh, in fairness to them, I think there was a hint from from SAPA at the time, or at least their, their, their new owners, that anyone who had their content would need to drop it immediately. And now it seems that's the straw that broke the camel's back for these guys. Well, my gut says it's somebody who used to work within SAPA. But hey, we'll go with Hacker Group. Yeah, this is what they told a news network uh, recently. We are simply concerned citizens who believe strongly in a free press and free data. You're also very clever chaps who've uh, managed to pull off something I think a lot of people are, are rooting for. But um, clearly, for what Segunjalo paid for that archive, they're probably really. Yeah, and the data, if you're interested, is available if you've got a Tor web browser. The link is available. If you just search, you'll find it. Just search... Um, Sapa archive on tour and you'll find it sham. Now there's a lot to love about Zimbabwe and I'm not just saying that because it's my home country. Well, maybe I'm a little biased. But anyway, uh, what I love about Zim is how when it comes to tech innovation, that joint is rubber meets the road. Innovation for the sake of problem solving or progress and not just for show and tell. Econets, EcoCash, uh, the innovative use of solar technology to do everything from charging mobile devices to providing temperature controlled chicken runs that can operate off the grid. And I love how radio stations use WhatsApp to engage with listeners in a way I haven't seen done in more developed places like here in Joburg. And now WhatsApp is being used to facilitate payments. I love it. This is a very interesting story of innovation and very simple innovation. There's a pharmacy, Impact Pharmacy in Zimbabwe, they use WhatsApp to facilitate payments for medicines and prescriptions. How it works is that uh, typically, in most of the cases, the person ordering the medicine or who needs the medicine and the person paying for the medicine are two different parties, so relatives. And the person paying typically lives outside Zimbabwe. So they send the person paying a reference number. He then logs onto their website using the reference number and their payment gateway, pays for the medicine. And as soon as the payment's done through their platform and confirmed, uh, another WhatsApp message is sent to the person who needs to come collect the order and the prescription. And that works seamlessly. So typically what would happen is um, I'm living outside the country, as I do, and one of my relatives, say my parents, um, is diabetic, which my mother is, and some you know, medicine has to be ordered for her. I would have sent money via MoneyGram or Western Union or something like that. Or the worst case scenario, I'd have to send it through my bank, received on the other side, charged a ton of money uh, for my mother to receive it, not at her convenience, tons of queues, and then go and queue up to pay cash at the pharmacy. No more. No more of that. This is very, as I said, very seamless and could speed up the transactions and getting your medicines. Sure. Big up to that. You know, to me, this is classic disruption, a relatively inferior technology or innovation 
organization that gets the job done effectively and and potentially upsetting the comfy position of you know mobile payments operators in Zimbabwe like EcoCash and outside the country and more importantly it removes the need for diasporans like me to to send money back home through remittance channels that 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 charges arm an arm and a leg just to do a simple thing. That's true. I'm I'm sure they also charge, but this removes so many legs in that process that it makes it quite good. Yeah, they probably charge something, but certainly the friction is reduced significantly. In fact, we must discuss, you know, or debate, you know, the idea of disruption and all the weird definitions that float. To me, this is classic disruption. You might disagree, but hey, we'll debate that another time. It's discussion time. Now, in today's discussion, we're debating the merits of open source software versus proprietary software. So, therefore, what are the issues at play here? Because uh, maybe we should start with some definitions so everyone's on the same page. What is open source software and how is it different from proprietary software? Let's define two types of open source software. You get open source software. So, this is software whose code is available publicly and you can modify as you want. But the person who initially created the code could go on and sell that software as a service there are many examples blogging platforms like wordpress like ghost there's tons of examples like that where the creators have made the code available for free but they continue to charge if you want to host with them or use their professional services as part of that software then the other side of it is there's free and open source software so i think that's self-explanatory this is the code is available publicly and it's always free nobody should charge you for it on the other side you've got uh, proprietary software and I think one word sums up what proprietary software is, and that's Microsoft. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love that mic drop moment right there. Your position um, in this debate is, given that statement, is pretty obvious. You're definitely a fan for open source software, right? Oh yeah, definitely, man. I believe that open source uh, gives Africans the ability to develop own solutions for ourselves and also to open them publicly, not necessarily make them free, but open the code publicly so that we can all work together and improve on it. There are many examples. Uh, One example is Ushahidi, but there are plenty of examples. Yeah, but the thing is, right? I mean, isn't it also fair to say that if you've created something or innovated in a certain area you should feel free and without guilt uh, you know be allowed to profit from it sure you should do that but on the other side i'm saying for the continent i mean we shouldn't be importing software uh, software is such a low capital intensive thing that we shouldn't really be importing it we should be developing our own solutions and open sourcing them to improve on them so that we can catch up so, so i see there's a superficial issue here and then there's a much there's a much deeper pseudo political issue here oh you can put it that way but you're putting words in my mouth here. all i'm saying is we should be developing our own software as a standard like from the onset we should be developing our own software then the other step is should we make it proprietary or should we open source it and i say we should rather open source it so that we can improve on it and make it world standard software so that we can catch up with all the global competitors okay so i hear that but let me speak as a consumer right so i'm not a programmer a software developer or anything like that and i appreciate the uh, pseudo political issues at play but as a consumer all i care about is a dope user experience and a really great user interface so basically stuff that works well and looks good and i'm basically pro whatever delivers on my increasingly finicky appetite for great software that looks great that's easy to use that exceeds my expectation in terms of simplifying my life now if open source software can deliver that i'm all for it well that's a fair point i mean all products should be good i mean we should all be measuring all software on global standards so 
whether it's a phone software, whether it's an app, whether it's an operating system, whether it's whatever. It needs to all meet the same standards. But on the other hand, I'm saying that to reach those standards, they're already, firstly, there are already software solutions that are of African origin, that are of world standards. But I think my main point here is that we should start developing software and open source it so that we can all collaborate and just improve on it at a quicker rate. And so who are you speaking to here? Are you speaking to decision makers who are making decisions for large corporates as to, you know, what systems to use in integrating their businesses? Are you speaking to young developers who are trying to decide which language to learn, uh, which companies to work for? Who are you speaking to? To everyone. Firstly, I'll answer both sides. The first one is the decision makers. I think they need to be a bit bolder and uh, decide on using African developed solutions whether it be in corporates, NGOs, wherever it is, as long as it meets your standards, do go for it. The argument I usually hear, even in government and also in corporate, is that, oh, there are not enough uh, open source skilled people to support this once we've put it in. And that, I think that's nonsense. They should, if the system is good enough, go with it and usually cheaper, but that's not a selling point. The selling point is, is it robust enough? And most of the time it is. And there are skills. The second part to the developers and startup founders, guys, about in February, I think I was speaking to one founder and he'd been investigating a startup he wants to start and it's going to rely heavily on tech. And he wanted, he was at a point where he's already gone through the process manually and tested it and sold, etc. Now he wanted to automate it and he wanted to find out what tech to use. And I was very straight. Like he was actually the argument was not the argument. The question was, should I go with Microsoft Azure and Microsoft uh, suite of products, which included, I think, Microsoft Dynamics and SharePoint? Or should I build something from scratch using open source technology? And my answer obviously was very simple. It was go with open source. But the key thing here wasn't because I like open source, was because tech forms a very important part to his business. So I thought he should rather develop his own tech and hustle with that and, yeah, build on that. To me, I see an issue around an inability or a challenge in branding and coming to market in the right way and, and certainly packaging to uh, to a level where the corporates you're talking about are willing to, to basically give it a chance. Is that part of the issue, maybe? That is a huge part of the issue. I will admit most of the guys who are in tech and in open source are not good at marketing, at branding. So that's a key challenge. Maybe we need to look at that. And also at a user experience. Not not user interface that much, but user experience. Is it easy to use? Is it intuitive, etc.? So I think that's a valid point. I'll take that. But on the other hand, I, I look at products like and services like Facebook, Twitter, and many others who develop their own uh, own tech internally using open source technologies and they open source it like you take twitter they gave us and we thank them for it something called bootstrap which is a javascript library that many platforms use nowadays and that's what i'm talking about in terms of sharing and collaborating and improving on on, on code if it wasn't for things like the android operating system being open source there wouldn't be so many android phones and penetration in africa would be relatively low for smart i would be stuck with fruits like blackberry and apples and stuff (laughs) that's true (laughs) well i don't know what you think uh i'm pretty neutral i'm brand neutral on this one (laughs) um because i'm pretty much um interested in something that changes my life for the better makes it simpler better faster and oftentimes open source clearly with android being an awesome example of that um does exactly that but many times also not quite being up to scratch i don't know what do you think um open source software versus proprietary software what are your experiences are you a developer are you in a senior position someplace about to make a crazy uh, decision in terms of acquiring 
or a, a new generation of ERP or CRM or something like that. Tell us what sort of things you're factoring into your decision making around uh, whether to go open source or to go proprietary. Tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you. You can comment in SoundCloud at africantechroundup.com. Give us a shout on Twitter at African Roundup or use the hashtag ATRU. Now remember this week the African Tech Roundup is supported by the Talk and Fireside Chat event, Skills Crowdsourcing with Trevor Wolf. He's the MD of Spring Leap. It's happening on Thursday, the 28th of May, between 6.30 and 9 p.m. at the Fitz Digital Innovation Zone in Bramfontein, Johannesburg, South Africa. It's definitely not to be missed. For more details and to book your seat, head to bit.ly forward slash startup Josie. You can always subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and on player.fm. Keywords, of course, are African Tech Roundup. Tell a friend. Now that's it from me, Andile Masugu. And Tefomohapi. Take it easy, everybody. Ciao.